Hello, this is Alex Nasser, coming to you with the inaugural episode in the podcast series, Black Peak Tête-à-Tête. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a director with Black Peak in Hong Kong, where I oversee the investigations practice. Today, I'll be speaking with Jaime Stulen, senior editor for APAC with one of our Acura sister companies, Debtwire. Debtwire is a leading provider of data, news, and analysis on global credit markets. Jaime and I will be chatting about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the distressed debt environment in Asia and how it has increased the risk for certain types of fraud. We'll also discuss what can be done to mitigate such risk and the importance of local expertise in doing so. Thank you, Jaime, for joining us today. Without further ado, Let's get started. How has uh, COVID-19 impacted uh, DebtWire's reporting? We've been as busy as ever, though not necessarily reflecting the COVID, uh, the COVID downturn. Uh, in, in many ways, COVID's flipped the script on what a downturn is and how it reflects the financial markets and, you know, particularly our market, which is, you know, big focus on leverage finance and distress. Um, as we see very much in the equity market, it's similar in the high yield market. Risk is, is back. This week, we, uh, we've seen Jack, uh, Jackie, which is uh, the JP Morgan index for corporate non-investment grade, one of the key, uh, the key indexes for, for Asian uh, high yield. It's back to positive year to date. That happened early this week. After you know cratering a march, it's it's managed climates its uh, way all the way back. Um, companies can issue high yield debt. That market has has recovered quite a bit, particularly since June. Uh, on the other hand, at least on the margins, there has been more activity in distress, though. Though, as I said, it's it's not to the extent of the headline numbers for, for you know, where GDP is for the different countries that we cover across Asia. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, because if you're a creditor, there's actually been certain restrictions of what you can do now. And there's also just internal restrictions on what you want to do at a time of this great uncertainty. Uh, Governments have stepped in and, and, and central banks have stepped in and imposed certain restrictions on putting companies into bankruptcy and, uh, and, and put in policies to discourage uh, creditors from putting companies into bankruptcy. You know, India has this great new bankruptcy law that got introduced in, in 2016 and was used to, to put a lot of very large debtors into bankruptcy. And provided a lot, provided a lot of opportunities for distressed investors. The number of bankruptcies, as 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 per that we've been tracking in India over the last quarter, over the second quarter, has fallen eighty percent year to date, uh, uh, year on year, eighty percent. That just now other markets don't necessarily have similar dynamics, but that's at least to some extent an example of what's been happening to make it more difficult for distressed investors to jump in right now. Um, 
So where was the market just prior to the onset of, of COVID-19 and what are the key uh, factors that have changed since then? Prior to COVID, the market was very, well, well the, the high yield market, the financing market was very active. Distress was active in pockets. In China, it's been active for, for about a year and a half as, as China has been allowing uh, increased number of companies, including state-owned companies, to default on, on even public bonds, which is, which is quite, a, uh, quite a shift. Um, and, you know, that, that was a lot of the activity. India was providing a little bit. And then, you know, Singapore had a bit. Um, but since COVID, the only market that's really seen a noticeable uplift in, in sort of workout activities, at, at least at a, at a public level, has been uh, Australia, which is not surprising because Australia is the most of a financing market like uh, like the U.S., for example, and the U.S. has a lot of bankruptcies. And that that's reflected both Australia has the most funky debt structures. Companies are, tend to be a little bit more levered. I mean, in the rest of Asia, we, we, we're still mostly a traditional bank financing debt market. Um, and, and Australia tends to be more aggressive and has a, a somewhat more predictable uh, bankruptcy process. So it's the kind of market where it, you know, you, you'll have more companies in trouble, but you'll also have more of a reason to use the, uh, the bankrupt, the, the insolvency system. Um, and so for example, in Australia, in the first quarter, you had the largest COVID related, uh, uh workout process a company called Speedcast, which is in, uh, in satellites. Um, and then Australia also had the first airline in the region to go under, which is Virgin Australia. Um, and then you've had a number of large retailers, Woolworth, and then there's a private equity platform there that, that also went under uh, related to COVID. And then another pocket, and this often happens in early stage of downturns, has been fraud, particularly commodity traders in Singapore. Hin, Hin Long and, and, uh, uh, was was perhaps the most no, most noteworthy. There's another one called Zenrock. Um, and somehow, and I, you know, this uh, this I guess is more up your alley. But somehow, banks that had hundreds of millions. I mean, HSBC had more than 500 million with Hin Hin Long, 500 million in loans exposure. Somehow, they didn't set aside enough or didn't do enough to figure out that maybe what's supposed to be their collateral is actually collateral that's double and triple pledged or maybe doesn't actually exist. And you kind of wonder, how is it possible that, that these banks have all this exposure and yet they haven't done, maybe they have done, but they haven't done the right due diligence to get, to, to, to ensure that this kind of fraud doesn't happen. That their exposure doesn't blow up. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I think uh, what we've seen so far, and some of those examples you cited are, are good evidence of that. What we've seen so far is, pre, is primarily pre-existing frauds that have come to light as a result of the, the financial shock of COVID. Um, 
and uh, we've seen a few of those. Um, and I think a dynamic that's that's brewing, which which potentially uh, uh, which potentially is is going to be a larger um, issue and um, one that's going to occur primarily in the future is um, the uh, the impact, the fallout from all the the disruption we've seen in the in the market, whether that's in uh, global supply chains or just the regular the, the normal ways of doing of doing business, um, hastily put together work from home uh, protocols, um, the ability of uh, internal compliance and internal audit functions to within companies to function properly. A lot of them are built around uh, uh, the assumption that certain people can travel within the region um, and manage these various risks. Um, and also just uh, uh, the various uh, rush that businesses have had to, uh, uh, the rush with, with which various businesses have had to um, seek to, to, to adjust their models, and particularly in terms of third parties they're, they're working with, or if they've had to consolidate certain responsibilities, if they need to reduce staff or whatever it might be, um, and the opportunities um, that might present for uh, you know potential bad actors within these organizations who who, who are intent on on um, committing some sort of fraud, and obviously that's going to be a minority of of people. But these opportunities, um, uh, it's it's fair to say, have have grown uh, uh, significantly as as a uh, as a result of the shock um, that COVID nineteen has has. Um, has constituted for for you know operations generally for for most uh, or many uh, companies. So, are there things they could start doing at this point? Um, absolutely. I mean, we're already through the the initial shock. I think it's um, the first thing it's uh, uh, to do is to assess the degree to which you might have been exposed and accept. To a certain degree, that you know that initial scramble to to keep keep things up and running may have involved some exposure to fraud. Um, whether it was, let's say, your you know a company's uh, whole supply chain um, or, or significant segment of that supply chain needed to be you know renewed. Maybe their their initial their their original uh, uh, third parties they dealt with suppliers and and other and other vendors uh, were no longer viable, and they had to in a, in a great degree of rush. Um, and under difficult, challenging circumstances, onboard new suppliers and new vendors. And maybe they had to, um, and this has been a common uh, uh, reality for, for a lot of companies, they've had to rely on, on the networks of local staff in order to find viable vendors and to, uh, and to um, bring them on board. Um, so it's a good starting point is to look back and be willing to sort of work retroactively and to go back and untangle maybe some of those uh, uh, compliance challenges that would have inevitably come out of just trying to maintain um, continuity. Um, another factor is also, you know, we, generally when we talk about fraud, um, there's a very sort of, it's, it's, a, it's overly simplistic um, kind of a structure, uh, but it's a, people generally look at uh, fraud investigators and, and people in diligence generally look at three factors. One is opportunity, which we've just talked about. Um, another is uh, motivation, which obviously means uh, people have, have significant financial or economic pressure or even career pressure. It can also just be correct uh, pressure to, to deliver results um, that uh, 
pushes them to towards you know exploiting these opportunities. Uh, and I think we've seen a lot of a lot of that across the board. Um, households, families, uh, cities, countries are under a lot of financial stress. Um, individuals will be under increased pressure to uh, to um, uh, you know just maintain their 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 financial uh, commitments. So we've seen that as well. Um, but really, what what I think a good starting point is just to look retroactively at where um, exposure might be, and then look into uh, look into trying to remedy some of those issues. Whether that means retroactively conducting more of a diligence on uh, on vendors that or, or suppliers that were hastily onboarded, or reassessing the risk you might have, uh, the exposure you might have. Uh, uh, faced from, um, you know, hastily put together, understandably, in, in many cases, work from home policies, um, where there might be more of a uh, risk of, of uh, data theft or IP theft um, and uh, things of that nature. So, one, one of the things we've been seeing banks do, and you're, you're talking about, like, putting measures in, being more strict, but at least we've, we've been seeing on banks, in some ways they're doing the opposite. They've been kicking the can down the road, you know, at, at a time where, where you say, you know, there's opportunity, need justification, companies are struggling. Uh, often you're having banks do what's called amend and extend, which is let's deal with this later. Let's give you the, in fact, often relax the covenants, the, the restrictions on what you can do. Term out the financing for a while and we'll come back and deal with this hoping that either the economy will recover or at least it will stabilize. So we'll, we'll be able to deal with it in a later time. Um, and, and that seems in some ways to give companies more of the opportunity to, to well, I'm not going to say commit fraud, but to, to move things around to their convenience. Um, is, is that what's happening with companies as well? Are they actually stepping in and, and, and doing what they need to do at this point? Um, it's be very hard to generalize, I think. Uh, it depends a lot on, uh, on the organization. I think a lot of companies are doing very good work. Um, some are catching up. And there are probably some out there who, who, who could be doing better. Um, the key risk with something like situations like that amend and extend uh, policy is that, um, of course, if, if the financial issues facing that company are related to COVID and are caused by COVID. Um, and you can expect that post COVID they're going to, they're going to recover and they just need that extra time. And that's actually the best decision for the bank. That's a sound, that's a sound uh, decision, but there are going to be cases where maybe they were struggling before COVID um, or there was pre-existing sort of uh, nascent or hidden fraud, undisclosed fraud issues um, prior to COVID that just became a lot more, you know, sort of urgent post-COVID, and that amend and extend as you say, is going to enable that type of activity. And of course, there's the fact that there there may be increased opportunity. Um, so for uh, and again, you can't uh, uh, you know pe people who commit major frauds are are, are fa very much a, a minority, a, a tiny minority of, of of overall individuals. So um, obviously, you can't structure everything around around that, but. Um, if there's increased opportunity, then uh, uh, you know the amend and extend will will give more of a of a buffer for that to happen. And what if the outlook for that company uh, post COVID um, is not good? 
either. And that's, I think, um, going to be contribute to motivation by, um, by uh, people internally that might be intent on or have opportunity to, to commit fraud if they think, well, you know, the disruption, the long, the post-COVID, the, the, the longer lasting impact of this disruption is going to call into question the viability of this model. Um, they have a lot less invested uh, in that job or in that firm. So in, in our coverage, you know, we've seen banks seeming quite comfortable do the amendments then deal with it later. On the other hand, in the in the bond market, we've had an experience with a, a company called Hylong that that's in the uh, oil field industry, oil field services produces these rig pipe, uh, these uh, drill pipes, um, and it asked its bondholders for an exchange offer, which is functionally uh, an amendment extent, and uh, it got. It got rejected by enough bondholders that it couldn't push the deal through. And, and as you were talking about, you know, is this a problem? Is this the company's liquidity problem? Is that relating to something now or is it relating to something prior to COVID? Part of the issue, the company eventually came out and said, look, our issue is we're in oil field services. Our customers can't pay. We need some time. We'll, we'll work this out. But then you had actually opposing ideas from some bondholders, one of which was this company maybe had issues well before and, and it, whatever those issues are, are maybe becoming more difficult to deal with uh, under the current environment. Right. And so let's put this company through a process and work it out. The flip side was, and this is, this is kind of a unusual dynamics, specifically with Chinese companies, there was the feeling this company is saying it doesn't have money, but actually it does have money. I don't know. It's kind of like a reverse fraud or fraud times two or something where they're telling us they need time because of COVID, but actually they're just trying to take advantage of us. And if they needed to, they would be able to pay us. And actually, as it turned out, the maturity date late last month came and uh, the company said, we don't have the money and uh, let's, let's, let's work something out. That's uh, it's, it's an interesting point. And one thing that occurs to me um, in relation to companies like Hylong, uh, the challenges of, and maybe this is a factor in the imagined extent, the challenges of sort of, uh, of potentially for a debtor to go after those assets is probably this is a not, not really a time when you would want energy assets. Or, for example, if it's an airline, when you would want to, um, you, when you would want to try to, uh, you know, enforce against aircraft, what are you going to do with them? Um, you're not going to be able to sell them. You're going to have to store them. That's going to be uh, that's going to be expensive. Um, so I think there is some. There probably is some merit to amending and extending to when you know those assets probably are uh, are worth more. And and and. Um, but the flip side of that would be, um, you know, that is a sound assumption, assuming that this is just not more time for uh, a pre-existing fraud to um, to worsen. To play out. Yeah. And to your point uh, about how do you work out what is there and what the real valuation is, um, a, a side note to that is how do you do due diligence? So 
some of the things we cover actively is the private financing market, the private debt market. Uh, and while in some ways this is the kind of market you might want to, the, the kind of macro condition you might want for private financing because there are companies that need liquidity, particularly private companies, and some of them are actually pretty good. But you can't go, you often can't go and travel to see what that factory is or what that business is or, you know, vet whether what they're saying is actually happening. Um, and so, you know, one, one of the outcomes in the private debt market is people are focusing on local opportunities and, and often that, that involves real estate because you, those are the real opportunities in places like Hong Kong and Singapore where you have the main, uh, the main pool of capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you, you need to do due diligence in Hong Kong, you can still get, on a, get in a taxi and head on to Chunmun and see some industrial space that maybe can be turned into a, uh, a luxury housing estate. Yeah. You can't, it's much harder to go somewhere in the middle of, of Hubei and figure that out. Uh, so what are, what can people do in a time like this? Or what options do they have to, that, to do due diligence where there is yeah. restrictions on travel? Now, that's a great question. I think um, an additional factor there is just understanding how the, the local context may have changed as well. Because a lot of local economies, um, local regulatory environments and, and, and everything else have just been turned on their head. Um, you know, out of necessity uh, to, to, to a large degree, but not just because of the disruption and, and, and various industries um, being heavily impacted by um, the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic, but also um, government policies that have been put in place to try to restrict, um, you know, further, uh, uh, in, you know, bring the infection rate down and, and et cetera. So there's a lot of uncertainty there, um, not just in terms of the specific uh, asset or, 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 or investment target you may be looking at, but also just what's the local context and, and what's the local outlook. Um, certainly, would, I would say it's increased the need for in-depth due diligence, but really this is the type of diligence that, um, which means sort of a very in-depth uh, diligence process, which not just looks at you know key risk factors, compliance risk factors, but also tries to place the target of the investment in the local economic context, in the local industry, um, in a local regulatory context, um, and um, figure out what other business interests they have and how that might impact things, uh, what the key assets are and what their status is. This is all, um, these are all diligence measures that we've been recommending for years because we see what happens, uh, uh, what can potentially happen when an investment goes bad um, and you haven't done that type of work. Um, first of all, it's more likely that you'll, you'll, you'll be exposed to factors that um, you may have been unaware of. Um, and second of all, um, once you do become aware, you're going to need to figure this stuff out anyways, and you're going to be figuring it out under, under, under very uh, uh, difficult circumstances rather than um, knowing exactly or maybe not exactly, but having a good idea of how things might play out and, and how to strategically approach um, some sort of an investment. So I would say that um, the the depth of diligence that you would need, we're, we're still recommending the same thing, which is sort of really get a sense for uh, those factors I just mentioned. Um, in terms of 
how to conduct that diligence and understanding what those emerging or new local risks might be in the new context, because there's a lot of things that, uh, uh, you know, that, have, that are different now. Um, you need to make sure that you are uh, working with a firm that has a strong local presence, um, that understands the environment locally uh, uh, very, very well, and can provide you with um, some uh, guidance into how to approach uh, uh, the diligence in, 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 in an intelligent way, and, and they can tell you what these risks are, what, how things have been disrupted. And I take it you're, that's something you guys can do at Blackbeam. That's absolutely something that we can do, um, uh, and that's something we, we help clients with um, a lot. Uh, uh, we have strong presence across Asia and globally, um, but I guess this, the focus of this is Asia. We have very strong presence uh, across Asia. We have very strong grasp of how things work, uh, local environments, strong local networks, um, experience in all the local industries. So this is exactly what um, the type of experience and the type of insight. So how, how do you get over leverage. the travel restrictions? Um, getting over the travel restrictions is a matter of having people in country, region wide. Um, but I mean, other than that, there's no real. That's right. I, I, I mean, we're seeing that with, with the distressed investors or the special situation investors, the, the firms that have uh, people on the ground, uh, in the, particularly in the countries that they're targeting they're able to jump in and do deals now. Whereas, you know, the, the, the hedge fund that's based in central in Hong Kong or, or downtown Singapore has quite a bit more limitation. They're the ones that have to do local deals or are much more reliant on, on third parties to try to vet. And I, I haven't yet found uh, a portfolio manager, I've spoken to many about this, who's comfortable relying on a third party to do the due diligence. You know, uh, they've tried, they've had people go out, use drones, you know, take their phones, video camera. But do you want to be the guy who signs off on a deal having not been there? And, uh, you know, you think you have a coal mine and it's a swimming pool. Right. Yeah. Well, I, the, the real solution to that um, there's no sort of one-off solution, um, the, but there's sort of a, a longer-term solution to that, which is to build relationships with and understand well um, the providers of, of various types of diligence services in the market um, so that you have these working relationships and um, they're able to understand what your concerns and your needs are and uh, you're able to engage with them in a, in a smart way and understand what they can do and, and who the optimal provider is for, for different types of diligence. So I, I think it'd be very challenging if you haven't, if you don't have that sort of a practice and you're getting into it now, um, it would be uh, a, a challenge to, to sort of figure that out. So you just ask around in the market and find, uh, you know, good, uh, uh, um, diligence providers with a solid reputation or who are used to working with uh, with uh, um, international uh, uh, clients in, in, in addressing these these very issues because these it's these this is the same these are the same issues that existed prior to COVID. it's just that they've become uh, sort of more uh, pronounced and more extreme to, to a large degree what are you though seeing in terms of um, uh, distressed debt opportunities and and financing. You mentioned just now it's a lot more difficult to make that decision when you can't 
go and look on the ground. Uh, what's the general dynamic in that respect um, across the region? Well, property is always like a go-to in Asia, and it, it, it feels like that's even more the case now. Um, and partly it's because local money sticks local now, even more than it normally does, and local money likes property. Um, we've seen some deals. I mean, Oak Tree just bought a, a portfolio of uh, distressed assets from a, from an Indian uh, non-bank financing company. Those kind of stuff happen if you have someone on the ground in India. and that. But largely, those are going to be deals that were already in the work well before COVID. Uh, or there's some special one off. I mean, every, everyone's looking for that special opportunity where you get like a top brand, a great company that somehow has has trouble. Uh, you know, Bain f must feel that way with uh, Virgin Atlantic, in, in, uh, Virgin Australia. But speaking to, to distressed investors, they're mostly sitting on the sidelines right now. There's, there's a, both because of the inability to do due diligence, but also the real concern about where we are in the market. How do we get valuations when, when you have, you know, equity market surging, right. implying crazy public uh, public valuations, and then you're coming in to try to do a private deal, and those valuations are, are going to at least have to reflect where the public market is, but yeah, is, a, is a professional investor going to come in and want to go in on a private asset at those valuations? So it's been a very, a very, very tough time for, for distressed investors looking to do those, those kind of distressed special situation investors, particularly in Asia. In, in, in other markets, in the U.S., where you have bankruptcy, where, where you have companies going through processes often because they have to go on, you know, on their local laws, um, then, then you have some more activity. But we, we haven't really seen that here yet. Right. Uh, I, I, I got one, one final question for you. Would you fly now? If you could get on an airplane, would you? Would I fly? Um, you mean in relation to the, to the risk of, of, uh, of, COVID. of COVID? Um, well, that's a, that's, that's a good question. I, I, um, it would depend on where and it would depend on why. Uh, it would depend on, I guess, under what circumstances. I, I, uh, so not absolutely no. No, not absolutely no. Okay. No. What about you? I think I'm still on the absolutely no. I'm, I'm, you know, Hong Kong, we've had slightly more COVID cases, a slight resurgence over the last few days. But I feel, I still feel like I'm happy to be here. It's nice yeah. and safe. And uh, I'm not sure I want to go anywhere else and, and be in that. It's almost not even just the risk of catching it. It's just being in the environment of... of um, Absolutely, yeah. The fear and having to uh, quarantine and, and isolate is, uh, is not a not a pleasant process, but um, I mean, it, you, you can sort of uh, uh, ask that question about a lot of things. Would you would you go to a bar? Would you go to the gym? Um, would you you know go to a restaurant? How do you how do you sort of uh, sort of cal what's your calculus? How do you figure that out? I haven't built the spreadsheet yet. <laughs> I'll work on it as soon as we finish. I saw um, there's a 
someone, someone, someone created some sort of a, a risk pyramid for, um, uh, you know, different types of venues. And I know um, gyms and bars were very high. I think bar was was in the top tier of risk. Um, gyms were very high. I don't I don't spend a lot of time in bars, but I do I, you know, like to go to the gym a few times a week. Um, and I've that's that's a decision I've made just based on the you know the degree to which it improves my quality of life generally and uh, you know that risk because obviously transmission in a gym risk of transmission in a gym is is obviously going to be high yeah. well thanks for the very interesting uh, conversation uh, Haim I think it's safe to say that both from a distressed debt perspective as well as from a uh, diligence and, and compliance perspective the the story of how uh, uh, COVID-19 will impact uh, things is still very much being written. Indeed. Thank you for having me here.